Bring all your failures. Bring your addictions. Come lay them down at the foot of the cross. Jesus is waiting. God so loved the world. Nine weeks ago, when I began this series of messages on the Sermon on the Mount, I I shared a couple of quotes. Some well-known people who have said some things about the Sermon on the Mount. And one of them occurred to me uh, again this morning, the one by C.S. Lewis. Do Do I care for the Sermon on the Mount? Do you mean do I like being hit in the head with a two by four? The Sermon on the Mount, it's such a nice message. It's so nice that Jesus uh, sat people down on a grassy hillside and said such nice things to him, to, to the crowd. He, he, he was so, so loving and kind, so, so like Jesus to be so meek and mild. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And maybe that's what we thought until Jesus started talking. It occurred to me that I wanted to remind you of the saying, don't shoot the messenger. I also had this thought this week, if I had been a little more shrewd in the scheduling of this series, I I could have had Pastor Tim give this message this morning. But I wouldn't do that to to my brother, my friend, my colleague, Pastor Tim. Part nine in the series on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks about divorce. I want to remind us of how Jesus introduced this section in the Sermon on the Mount. uh, Going back to chapter five, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And then he says in verse 20, I tell you, unless your your righteousness, unless your personal practice of righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You will never get to the front gate by your acts of righteousness. Dennis, you think you're such a good boy, but you're not good enough. Remember, my brother, my older brother said that to me on the day when I asked Jesus to be my savior. Because I was a good boy. Everybody said so. I even thought God said so. Oh, little Dennis, he's such a nice boy. He's, so, he's, he's such a good boy. I can hardly wait till he comes and runs around in front of my throne. You know, that probably was going through my seven-year-old brain. Everybody was telling me what a good boy I was. And they were comparing me to my three older brothers, and they were right. <laughs> in case my brother Don happens to be listening, you know they're right. But he's the one who said to me, he's the one who said to me, Shorty, that was what they all called me back then. I wish they were still thinking of me that way. (laughs) You think you're such a good boy, you're never going to be good enough to go to heaven. You have to ask Jesus to save you. 
And I knew he was right. I knew he was right. I had, I had been leaning in that direction for all of the seven years that I had, you know, tucked under my belt by that point. And even though a seven-year-old can't, can't have a, a great before salvation story, you know, not the dramatic, yeah, I was, you know, I was doing a hard time down in Folsom County Prison. <laughs> But I knew I was a sinner. I knew I was prideful. I knew I had been disobedient to parents. I knew I had said things that I shouldn't say. I knew I had taken things that weren't mine. I knew I had done things I shouldn't do. And I knew that God knew. And my brother said to me, you've got to take what you've been learning in Sunday school and junior church and church and whirly birds and the kids ministry thing that we had going on back then. You have to take those things and make them yours. You have to make a personal decision to trust Christ and ask Him to forgive you. And then you can go to heaven because it doesn't matter anymore that you're not going to be good enough because Jesus is good enough. And He will carry you there. Now, for a seven-year-old, I understood that much of theology. I couldn't do it myself. And, And in the... Decades since, I've learned nothing to convince me otherwise. I'm still not going to be good enough. No matter how many years I spent studying, no matter how many degrees, how many letters come after my name, how, how much I have padded my resume, and how many um, tens of dollars I've given in the offering, or whatever it might be, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus uh, gives us seven, uh, six, six applications, six illustrations of this truth in actual comparing what the law says to what Jesus says. But, but first, he, um, he points this out to us. And I've, I've shown you these three statements um, every week for the last three weeks. So by now, you're probably very familiar with them. Obedience to God is not only an outward thing, but it is also, and it is even more importantly, an inward thing. God examines our motives as well as our actions. And he can tell even even the selfish motive behind my altruistic action. And... We're going, to come, we're going to come and see some other examples of that later on in this series when Jesus talks about when you're praying and when you're fasting and when you're giving. Don't do them to be seen by men. That's your motive, to be seen by men and to be thought godly. But God knows that my motive for my righteous action is a selfish motive and though I might be praised by men, God's going to say, don't bring that weak sauce in here. <laughs> Who's the uh, basketball player that was known for blocking shots? Dikembe Mutumbo. No, 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 no. And the, and the third truth, God has always been, always been more interested on what's on the inside of me than what's on the outside of me. Thank goodness for that. So, the illustrations that Jesus gives, six of them, 
uh, we recognize each of these by Jesus saying something like, You have heard it that it was said to the people long ago, but I say to you, and uh, we've already looked at what I what Jesus says about, you have heard it said about, thou shalt not commit murder, but I say to you. And then last time we said, you have heard that it has been said, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say to you. And here we go this morning. Snap, crackle, pop. It was also said, Jesus says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. The, the custom of the time, the interpretation of Moses' teaching from, the, from Mount Sinai about divorce was uh, a Jewish man who had tired of his wife could um, have a no-fault divorce. No-fault divorce for any reason whatsoever. He could just write out a certificate, I divorce you. Make some, make some explanation of why I divorce you. And then his marriage would be dissolved legally in the eyes of his community. And he was free to take another wife. Now his ex-wife was free of her first marriage. And she could be free to marry again if she could. But unfortunately, in those days, in that society... Uh, men had all of the power, and he could divorce his wife. Maybe she would be forced to try to go back home to her parents if they were still living and able to take her in, or find some other way to support herself. Now, you and I will, you and I will say something like, that's not fair. And I will say, let's change the statement, because fair is something that is a human construct. Let's say, that's not just. That puts it more in terms of what God would say. That's not just. That's not just. And Jesus said, that's not just. That's not what the intent of the law is. He goes on to say, but I say to you, but I say to you, the proper application of that teaching is, everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. You are forcing her into a life of sin. And whoever marries that divorced woman also commits adultery. I don't want to talk about this. 1984... Not George, Elwell, not George Orwell's book. 1984, the year that I graduated from Bible college, I attended a pastor's meeting somewhere in South New Jersey. I was invited to a meeting of pastors in our denomination, coincidentally the same denomination that our church is a part of, uh, the, the South Jersey Fellowship of Pastors of Like-Minded Churches. Uh, I was the youth pastor at a church in Philadelphia, we were part of the same association. It was closer to us than any Pennsylvania association. So we would just cross one of the bridges over the Delaware River and go to um, the pastor's meeting. And I remember my senior pastor took me to that meeting. It was my first meeting of pastors. And I felt like, wow. <laughs> these, 
It's like, these are important men, godly men. And uh, we sat down in a, and, and broke bread together. We had lunch, and, and these men, these pastors were arguing, debating the question of, can a man in our churches who has been married and then divorced, can he serve in our churches in a leadership role? And the debate went on for hours. And I had no opinion about this. I was, you know, my eyes were as huge as saucers. And I was a youngster in my very early 20s. And I understood my role there was to watch and listen and not speak. I was coached into that role. Gently coached into that role by the senior pastor who invited me and took me. So I said not a single word, but I took in everything that I could, could hear. And I said, wow, this is an important question. And we don't have consensus about how we're supposed to answer it. This was almost 40 years ago. But Kelly and I often in our private conversations, which we do have occasionally in our private conversations, we often comment on the fact that almost nobody anymore is talking about that question. Because society and culture have moved past it to the point where it's no longer a question. And, uh, and I, I know that some of you in the room today are bracing yourself for me to say something outrageously accusatory. It's not going to happen. Bring your afflictions to the foot of the cross. And, and stand there with me while I throw mine at Jesus' feet. You throw yours at Jesus' feet. Once they're at Jesus' feet, I got nothing more to say about it. Not yours. Not mine. Okay? But I have an idea that many people, I might even go so far as to say every person listening to me this morning has had some failed marriage affect you in some way. Some marriage in your circle of influential people, some marriage has ended in divorce. And it's almost never painless. I, I want to just take the word almost out of it. It's never painless. Jesus has something to say about it. Listening, listening to um, my new mentor in, in print, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the book that Mike Hopper gave me. Um, this week I was reading what he had to say about this section. And he said, pastors do not have permission to skip over any parts of the Bible they don't want to talk about. I went to seminary with a, with a friend. Uh, I, I listened to one of his messages. He was preaching a series of messages in one of the Gospels. And I remember hearing him say, I read this passage and it didn't speak to me. And so I went to the next section and I read this section and it didn't speak to me. 
And then I went to this section and it spoke to me. So this is what I'm going to tell you. And I, and I said, wait a minute. I don't get to do that. I, I don't, I'm not allowed to skip the parts that don't speak to me. I'm not allowed to do that. If, well, I, could, I guess I could do that. No, nobody in this room is going to say, hey, hey, penalty flag, unsportsmanlike conduct, offsides, false start, whatever, foul ball. Probably none of you, probably none of you would really object if I didn't cover every word. In fact, some of you might say, oh, thank goodness. I thought this series. But you know who would have an objection is the one who really I have to account for. I have to give an account to God for every word I say to you. In this role that he has chosen for me. I have to be accountable for everything I say, everything I do, everything I don't say, everything I don't do. So I can't pass this passage over. I can't. I want to call your attention to a more expanded statement that Jesus made about this same question later in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 19. It's a a long passage. I'm going to read through it and make some comments. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, Matthew 19, verse 1, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee, entered into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Which was the application of the law in the Jewish Talmudic tradition, the interpretation of interpretations. (coughs) The custom was, as long as I do this properly, I can set aside this woman and take another one, younger one, One that can give me more children. I don't know. Whatever reason. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus answered. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Have you heard those words before? If you've been to a wedding, you've probably heard some version of those those words, right? And they said to him, they answered back to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Well, why did, why, did God, why did Moses give us this permission if we're not allowed to use it? And Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of your heart. I don't know if that's how he said it, but that's what he said. Because of the hardness of your heart. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but, but from the beginning it was not so. 
It's not what God had in mind. It's not what God intended. It's not what God meant when he said, the two shall become one flesh for a while. And then Jesus says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Oh, now this is almost the exact same statement, but it is slightly different. If you notice carefully, in the original statement, Jesus said, whoever divorces his wife causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries her is committing adultery. But he didn't say anything there about the person who issued the divorce statement. But here Jesus said, whoever divorces his wife and marries another, he is the one committing adultery. And Jesus already said what he said about adultery. The disciples now, the disciples said to him, man, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Now, from what we know, most of these disciples were not married, right? So, you know, they're, what they're really saying is, <laughs> I, I'm in a better position than this guy is because I don't have to worry about me divorcing the wife I don't have. We know Peter was married because he had a mother-in-law. But the others, as far as we know, did not marry. At least not while they were following Jesus as his disciples in his lifetime. So Jesus answered them. He said to them, well, okay, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. In other words... This, this thing I'm about to say right now, this thing I'm about to say right now, Jesus, probably doesn't apply to you. But, but to some it does. Uh, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. This would be uh, a child who is born without the biological ability to reproduce. A rare Condition, very rare condition. But uh, this person has been asexual, asexual from birth. And then there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. This is the brutal, this is the brute, I was thinking about this, brutality of human history. If you, if you read through human history, it's, it's a history of brutal practices. And I thought, as I was thinking about how, how brutal human history has been in those days gone by, that we really haven't gotten away from brutality very far. Because there's still brutality that goes on to this very day. And not just in those places way over there. There's brutality happening in our own communities. A lot of it we don't know about. But we're in this age of information, we're learning more and more and more about brutality amongst us. 
I guess I don't want to alarm anybody into thinking that I'm thinking that amongst us includes the people in this room. I'm hoping that there isn't any brutality happening in your personal experience. But in our culture, in our community, in our communities, there's brutality still happening, right? So one of the manifestations of brutality that Jesus mentions here is that some people have been physically mutilated to render them sexually impotent. And there might be several reasons why people would do that. Historically, one of the reasons to do that was to take a man and, and uh, mute, mutilate him sexually so that he could be trusted with beautiful women that were not his. And he would be in charge of the harem, the harem. Read the story of Esther in the book of Esther. Uh, for some more information about that. So there's some who are eunuchs from birth, some who are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And then Jesus said, there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. I think that this does not literally mean that some people were mutilating themselves to rid themselves of this sexual attraction to others. Like when we talked about, Jesus talked about, uh, if, if your right eye offends you, pluck it out. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. And then whatever else might be giving you trouble, get rid of that. But Jesus is not referring to actual physical self-mutilation as much as he's referring to a, a choice that some very few people have made to choose a life of celibacy for the sake of serving the kingdom of heaven. And, and, and Jesus says, it's not for everybody. Let the one who is able to receive it, receive it. Paul mentions this as well in uh, his epistles. That... It might be, if you really want to commit your life to serve the kingdom of heaven and to proclaim the gospel, in Paul's experience, that might mean that you're going to put your life on the line every time you step outside of your door. You might find yourself crawling out from under a pile of rocks where people stoned you and left you for dead, thinking that they had finished you off. And Paul says, if this is the life you're choosing for yourself, it might be better for everybody if you remain unmarried. So that you can focus on that. Jesus talks about the importance of divorce and purity. I want to take you back into the Old Testament book of Malachi. Some people like to pronounce it Malachi. <laughs> but it's Malachi. Malachi. In Malachi, God speaks through his prophet Malachi and he, and he has a series of grievances that he airs with his people. The people that he has chosen, the people that he has made certain promises to and covenants with. And he says, I have some issues with you. And uh, most of the time, whenever someone takes you to Malachi, uh, they really want to talk to you about tithing. That's one of the issues. But I'm going to leave that one for another day. 
this is this is what God has to say through his prophet Malachi in chapter two, verse 13. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning. You make a big show of devotion in religious ceremony. And you're upset, you're weeping and groaning because God is no longer regarding the offering that you're bringing or accepting it with favor from your hand. You're coming to church faithfully and you're tithing, you're giving, you're making your offering and God doesn't seem to be satisfied. Why not? You say, verse uh, 14, yet you say, for what reason is God, is God upset with me? Why isn't God listening to me? What, what does God have against me? For what reason? And here's the answer. Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. Against whom you have dealt treacherously. Issuing her a certificate of divorce. Because you have trumped up some charge or inadequacy in her. And you want to put her away and... Go shopping. Maybe you've already finished your shopping and you're ready to replace her, but you've got to get her out of the way first. So you give her, you deal treacherously with her. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. That's a word that we should take seriously. He goes on. Not one has done so who has a remnant of the spirit. If you have behaved this way, the Spirit of God is not guiding you. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. Stop doing this, God is saying. Stop doing this because if you haven't figured it out, my hand of blessing has been withdrawn from you. Because you are callous and careless in this part of your idea about how you're supposed to live your life. And the people of God need to be warned not to let the customs and the cultures of the world that we are living in, to whom we have been appointed ambassadors, we are not supposed to adopt the culture of our host nation. We're supposed to represent the culture of the one we represent in his kingdom. This is what God says in Malachi 2.16. You ready? I didn't write this. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. I ask the question, why does God hate divorce? There could be a number of answers to that question. It causes great hurt. It shows in some way that we have not taken our promises seriously. But I'm not, I'm not trying to put any kind of a judgment on anybody, okay? I'm not trying to put any kind of a judgment on anybody there's a reason why God says, I hate divorce. And I want to show that to you in the last few minutes that I have to talk with you this morning. 
It's in Ephesians chapter 5. And Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 21, uh, Paul says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he goes into this section about wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. You, you are all familiar with that section in Ephesians 5, right? And you, you probably heard that um, on occasion at a wedding when the, when the minister gives some remarks to the bride and to the groom. This is what God wants for you. Uh, take this seriously. Um, in verse 31, at the very end of that section... Paul picks up with these familiar words. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. God spoke these words at the first wedding. He presented, he brought, he brought the blushing and beautiful bride down the um, aisle. Maybe he had creatures, um, maybe he actually had a ring bear. It was a big deal. This was the crowning moment in the creative work of God. When he, he brought this woman that he fashioned out of the man. And he presented this woman, Eve, the mother of all living, to the man, Adam. He said, here she is. Isn't she gorgeous? She wasn't wearing a veil. Okay, so God did not pull back the veil and kiss her goodbye like the father of the bride presenting. Okay, but he presented this woman to this man and he said, both of you are made in my image. You're male, you're female. Together, you bear my image. Now take this work of creation that I have been laboring on and have dominion over it, steward it, care for it. It's mine, but I'm putting you in charge of it. Be good, faithful stewards. And though you are two individuals, when I bring you together like this, you are now a completed work of my creation. You are now one flesh. And then, and then God said in that ceremony, for everyone who comes after them to know, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, a woman shall leave her home, and the two shall become one flesh. And what God has put together, let no one take asunder. And that's important. It's the very first social contract. And... Verse 32 of Ephesians 5 lays the whole thing out for us. This mystery, Paul says, of the husband loving his wife and the wife loving and submitting to her husband, this mystery is profound. That means deep. It takes some thinking. It takes some regarding. But this is it. I am saying... That this marriage union 
is a picture of Christ and his relationship with the church, his redeemed. This is why one of the words for the church is the bride of Christ. Every time people look at you and your wife together, every time... Ladies, people look at you and your husband together. Every time your children see you, you parents interacting with each other. Every time you get into a quarrel in public and husbands, you're annoyed. You're obviously annoyed with your wife because she's looking at every single item in the store. (laughs) And you found what you needed when you walked in 10 steps from the front door. And now... You're tired and you're cranky and you want her to just get on with it. People around you see it. Paul says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you husbands and wives, you are the living illustration of Christ and the church. How are you demonstrating that? How are you showing this to your children? How are you showing this to your wife's three brothers? How are you showing this, wives, to your husband's parents? The (laughs) in-laws. This wife was saying to her husband, why can't you ever say anything nice? And finally said, all right, your in-laws are nicer than mine. (laughs) Why does God hate divorce? Because it's taking his opus, his life's work, his crowning work of, of creation... The most important relationship between any two human beings. And we're taking a knife and slashing across it. Saying this is not important or valuable to me. And God is saying, but it's valuable to me. Husbands and wives... Bring your afflictions, bring your failures to the foot of the cross. Present them to Jesus. God so loved the world. If if you are carrying in you a scar from a failed marital relationship, your own or somebody else's, just because God says, I hate it, doesn't mean he won't forgive and restore And bless. In case anybody in this room is thinking, I'm after you, I'm not. However, there is one who might be after you the hound of heaven, written in a famous poem, who pursues and pursues and pursues and pursues. And the the more you run, the more the Holy Spirit follows. Until you finally, in your exhaustion, stop and turn and say, Enough already! What would you have from me? 
And the next thing you hear will be God saying to you, I thought you'd never ask. This is what I would have from you. And by the way, this is what I have for you. Jesus is waiting. God so loved the world. Let's pray together. It's hard. It's hard, Father. Thank you for helping me today. You know how I felt about having to stand up and say this. I hope that I have said what you wanted me to say. I hope that those listening have heard what you wanted them to hear. I hope that no one has heard me accusing or condemning. That was not my intention, my thought at all. I pray that you having caused your word to be proclaimed, read aloud, you who wrote that word, who inspired that word, I pray that you would use it as you have promised to use it. Stand with us as we sing, be thou my vision.
Thank you, God. Thank you for the word you had for us today. Thank you for the fact that we can bring all of our whatever, all of our failures, addictions, afflictions, burdens, and lay them down at the foot of the cross. For your work was completed there on our behalf. And thank you that on the third day, you rose again. And that today we stand in worship of a living Savior who is a God so high, who bends so low to meet us. Thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name.